0: Hello, I'm Bob Gilmore. Welcome to Tentative Affinities, my ongoing series of audio documentaries about composers at work in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Today, I'll be talking about the use that composers of new music have made of field recordings, real-world sounds captured outside of the recording studio. We'll be right back.
1: back. and anyway.
0: That was the opening of Dancers on a Plain, the 5th String Quartet by Kevin Volans, composed in 1993 and played on that Collins Classics disc by the Duke Quartet. The piece combines sound recordings from the landscape of Volans' former homeland, South Africa, with the dance patterns of the Music for String Quartet. This immediately creates a sense of dual perspective, from the imaginary wide-open terrain of the African landscape to the confined space of a concert hall or dance venue where the work would normally be played. This piece, like many of Voland's compositions, has been eagerly seized upon by choreographers. The title, Dancers on a Plane, is taken from a painting by the American artist Jasper Johns, in which Johns inserts figurative references into otherwise abstract patterning. This juxtaposition of abstract and concrete imagery attracted Voland, and it provides one response to the question I posed at the beginning, about the different kinds of relationships possible in the combination of field recordings and instrumental or vocal music. Here, the abstract music of the string quartet joins with the concrete imagery of the recorded sounds, with the creaky gate, children's voices, and bells around the necks of animals. Follins writes that when he was composing the quartet, he felt that what he was doing was, quote, rather like making windows in the fabric of the piece and inserting photographic images of the world that gave rise to the music, unquote. The interest of composers in the sounds of the world around them is, of course, not a new thing. It stretches back for centuries. Of all environmental sounds, birdsong has probably been the most widely imitated in both vocal and instrumental music, all the way from 16th century madrigals and keyboard pieces via the cuckoo and other birds of Beethoven's 6th symphony, to its extensive use by Olivier Messiaen, who regarded birds as the greatest musicians on our planet. But there are many other frequently imitated sounds. Warfare, for example. Not only trumpets and drums, but some early keyboard repertoire uses tone clusters, groups of adjacent keys played at the same time in the low register of instrument to imitate the noise of cannons. There are many varieties of weather sounds in the symphonic repertoire. Berlioz made a marvellous evocation of thunder in the third movement of his Symphonie Fantastique where a lonely cor anglais plays as though in the middle of the deserted countryside while thunder rumbles overhead and Berlioz created a no less stunning evocation of extreme weather conditions in the Royal Hunt and Storm section in Act Four of his opera The Trojans. Water sounds of various kinds are imitated to great effect in the piano music of Liszt, Debussy and Revelle, everything from the playful sounds of fountains to the melancholy sound of the rain. The swell of the sea, with its crashing waves and ever-changing behaviour, has proved irresistible to many composers, notably Debussy in La Mer, Britten in the opera Peter Grimes and many others. The more recent advent of recordings of the singing of humpbacked whales was the inspiration for George Crumb's Voice of the Whale in 1970, in which these sounds are simulated by an amplified trio of flute, cello and piano. All the examples I've just mentioned use purely acoustic sound sources to imitate the sounds and textures in question an example of music's mimetic function, its ability to imitate reality. But the possibility that music could actually embody the sounds themselves was increased considerably with the development of high-quality sound recording after World War II. Recordings of environmental sounds could now be used in music performance contexts. But opinions about how this should best be done varied enormously. Take the interesting dispute that arose in the early 60s in the GRM, the Groupe de Recherche Musicale, founded by Pierre Schaeffer in Paris. Schaeffer was one of the early pioneers of electroacoustic music, and of musique concrète in particular. But he had doubts about the use of raw, untreated recordings in his work, feeling that sounds needed a certain amount of manipulation in the studio before being truly useful as part of a compositional discourse. This ran counter to the views of his younger colleague, François-Bernard Masch, one of the members of the GRM, who insisted that, quote, A sound that has been manipulated is, for me, an impoverished sound. If I adopt sounds, it's that I can already hear their music. The need to distort a sound, which Schaeffer often advised, seemed to me completely useless, even harmful, unquote. This soon led to a parting of the ways between the two, and Masha's resignation from the GRM. Let's have a listen to these two different approaches. First, an extract from Schaeffer's pioneering Étude au Chemin de Fer from 1948, a purely tape piece made from manipulated railway sounds, followed by an extract from Masha's Naluan for nine instruments and tape from 1974 which uses untreated recordings of bird song, together with signs of insects and amphibians. <sniffs> These two pieces, although composed some 25 years apart, show very clearly the difference in approach to field recordings taken by their two composers. In Schaeffer's Étude au chemin de fer, you can hear clearly the various kinds of treatment he has used to make his montage, which includes looping, filtering, and somewhat crude section joins. Nonetheless, given the primitive state of the technology Schaeffer had available in the late 1940s, the piece is effective in what it sets out to do. Marsh's Naluan, in comparison, uses the untreated recordings of its bird and insect life to create a texture where the instruments sometimes imitate and sometimes counterpoint the recorded birds, resulting in a striking hybrid texture somewhere between the concrete and the abstract. With the development of portable high-quality tape recorders by the 1970s, a whole new interest in making field recordings took hold. The most notable such project to emerge in those years was the World Soundscape Project, initiated and directed by the Canadian composer R. Murray Schaeffer, who unfortunately shares a rather similar surname to that of his older French electroacoustic colleague Pierre Schaeffer. Schaeffer, in the 1960s, coined the marvellous term soundscape by analogy to the term landscape, which he defined as any field of oral perception. Therefore, one can speak of the soundscape of a modern city, of a provincial village, the soundscape of the seaside, or of one's own living room. In 1977, Schaeffer published a wonderful and important book on the subject, originally entitled The Tuning of the World, and later republished under the title The Soundscape. In it, he studies the soundscapes of the world, from the earliest recorded human history to the present day, introducing a lively new vocabulary of descriptive terms. For example, any sound unique to a particular location Schaeffer termed a sound mark, by analogy with the term landmark. A keynote sound is a continuous sound, sometimes unnoticed, such as a hum in an office building, but it can also mean such things as the sound of the sea, omnipresent in the ears of those communities who live beside it. A sound signal in Schaeffer's terminology, means a foreground sound meant to be heard, which can be a warning sound of some kind, say an alarm bell, or simply any sound event that is clearly audible and draws attention to itself. In the early 1970s, before the appearance of The Tuning of the World, Schaeffer's World Soundscape Project produced two marvellous publications in the form of books with accompanying cassette tapes. One, a study of the Vancouver soundscape, Vancouver was where their project was based, and a study of five northern European villages. Schaefer urges us to imagine the world soundscape as though it were a piece of music, with complex and overlapping rhythms, textures that change sometimes from minute to minute, sometimes from day to night, and sometimes change only very subtly over large spans of time. These materials can be recorded, studied, analysed, and conclusions can be drawn, Schaeffer's book, The Tuning of the World, especially if you encounter it as I did at an impressionable age, can really open your ears as never before to the sounds around you. Let's try a little experiment. I'd like to play you a short extract from a field recording I myself made a few years ago. I wonder how much information you can glean from it without my telling you anything about it in advance. Here we have examples of Schaeffer's sound marks, keynote sounds, and sound signals, all part of a moderately complex texture. For that matter, I wonder if a careful listening will enable you to guess where this was recorded. The keynote sounds in that recording include the chirping of birds perched in trees directly above the microphone, a continuous low-pitched rumble which is the sound of distant traffic we know it's distant because there are no noisy cars passing close by the microphone, then there's the steady tolling of a church bell that might suggest the recording was made on a Sunday which indeed it was. Then you heard fragments of conversations passing by, but not close enough to identify their languages accurately. Tourists, perhaps. If you were listening very closely, about two-thirds of the way through, you'll have heard the sound of a suitcase on wheels, creating a regular rhythm as it rolls over the paving stones. Then there's one very particular sound, quite close to the beginning, which recurs later towards the end, which might just about enable you to identify the location, if you've been there, the sound of a tram passing by and coming to a halt, with the sound signal of its bell ringing to tell passengers to get out of the way. Tram bells in European cities, and indeed the sound trams make in general, are all wonderfully different. This one is of a tram in Amsterdam, where this recording was made outside its central station one grey November morning. Murray Schaeffer also created some stunning compositions that are intended to be performed out of doors, merging the signs of the environment with the signs of his music. Perhaps the most extraordinary is The Princess of the Stars, which is intended for performance around a wilderness lake beginning an hour before dawn. The audience sits on the shore, while the ritual is performed on the lake in canoes. The characters of the drama and the instrumentalists are road back and forth while they sing and play. This work, of course, involves also an incredible commitment from the audience. who have to get up in the small hours and drive to a remote location. The work has been performed several times. One performance attracted an audience of over 5,000 people. There's no commercially available recording of The Princess of the Stars. So let's listen instead to an extract from a 1997 composition by Schaeffer, Wolf Music, which he describes as a ritual music drama created for the wilderness of the Halliburton Forest and Wildlife Reserve in central Ontario. Every year, for 10 years or more, a group of about 60 people camped out in this reserve for several days to prepare the piece with Schaefer. There is no audience. Through it, Schaefer says, we are attempting to discover our connection with nature. Here's an extract from a CBC radio programme on the work. Dawn, mist over the lake, mist rising, rising over the water. Nature awakens, we awaken. part of R. Mary Schaefer's Wolf Music, from a two-CD Schaefer portrait set on the Canadian label Center Discs. I want to play now music by the American composer David Dunn, dating from the 1970s, around the time Schaeffer was establishing his World Soundscape project, but very different in nature and intention. Dunn was at that time still in his 20s and living in Southern California, where he'd had a brief stint as assistant to the composer Harry Parch. His compositional interests focused around environmental contexts, with the aim not of bringing recorded sounds to the concert hall, but, as Schaeffer was soon to do, of going out into the wilderness and interacting with the sounds he encountered there. This was in part an attempt to explore the possibilities of a new kind of interactive language, using music as a means of enlivening and energizing the natural world. Dunn recorded most of these performances. Seeing the resulting tapes as documents of a lived event that could never be precisely recaptured. Here's part of one of the earliest works in his catalogue, Nexus One for Three Trumpets. The piece was made for, and recorded in, the area known as Hermit's Gorge in the Grand Canyon in June 1973. The score specifies sound gestures that the trumpets perform interactively with the canyon environment. This interaction, Dunn says, focused primarily on two things, the extended reverberation and extraordinary spatial acoustics of the rock formations, and the behaviour of non-human life forms, such as the crows heard throughout the recording. Here's part of David Dunn's Nexus One. That was an extract from Nexus One by David Dunn, as performed in the Grand Canyon in 1973 by trumpeters Ralph Dudgeon, Ed Harkins, and Jack Logan. Subsequent works pushed this interactivity into new directions. One of my favorites amongst his early works is the next piece I want to play, Mimus Polyglottus, a collaboration between Dunn and his friend Rick Couples. The title is the Latin name of The Mockingbird, the small, very beautiful feathered creatures known for their incredible ability to mimic sounds they hear around them, including unlikely sounds such as that of machinery. Don discovered that San Diego's Balboa Park had numerous mockingbirds, and he wanted to pose a challenge by playing them the most extreme non-acoustic sound stimuli he could imagine. The piece uses, to my ears, quite horrible synthesised sounds as a challenge for the birds to test how well they can respond, and to engage in a dialogue in which neither the human performers nor the birds are, let's say, speaking their native language. That was part of David Dunn's Mimus Polyglottis for Mockingbirds and Electronic Sounds, recorded in San Diego in 1976. It's from a wonderful two-CD set of Dunn's early works on the Innova label. Dunn's output is infused with a deeply serious ecological dimension, no tree-hugging airiness for him. He regards his work perhaps as music, or I certainly do, but always as a form of research into living systems and their behaviour, the survival patterns, and the relationship of non-human creatures to human ones. This is true also of some of the work of the New Zealand-born American composer Annea Lockwood. She is perhaps most famous, indeed notorious, for her 1968 performance event Piano Burning, a rather less ecologically friendly activity out of thought, in which some brave soul plays an upright piano while it starts to burn, from the flames of a piece of paper soaked with lighter fluid placed inside it and set alight. I'll play now part of one of her other well-known works, A Sound Map of the Hudson River, mostly recorded in 1982 and released as a CD on the lovely music label in 1989. This piece in its CD form is a collage of 15 recordings made at various times and places along the sweep of the Hudson River, from its source in Mount Marcy in eastern New York State, south to Great Kill's Beach on Staten Island. The CD booklet carefully lists the exact location and recording times of the 15 tracks. Lockwood remarks that the purpose of this is not simply documentation, but to recreate, quote, the special state of mind and body, which the sounds of moving water create when one listens intently to the complex mesh of rhythms and pitches, unquote. Here's an extract from near the beginning of the sequence, recorded at Feldspar Brook. That was part of Aenea Lockwood's A Sound Map of the Hudson River. This work, originally commissioned as an installation, poses the question of whether one is listening to a simple field recording, no more and no less, despite Lockwood's claims to the contrary, or whether there is a particular aesthetic dimension to the experience that brings it into the domain of music. With this particular piece, I'm never really sure, nor perhaps does it matter very much. To me, A sound map of the Hudson River is more like a soundscape recording a la Schaefer, where one may choose to listen to the recording as though it were a piece of music, or to use it to evoke memories of the river itself. This evocative quality of sound recordings, their ability to conjure up vivid memories of places we've been to, is, I suppose, an oral equivalent of Proust's famous Madeleine moment, where one bite of a delicious French pastry leads the narrator to an involuntary memory of a long-ago place and time. For me, this is exactly the case with the next piece I want to play, an extract from a CD entitled Métro Pré Saint-Gervais by Dan Warburton, Jean-Luc Guionnet and Eric Lacasse. Dan Warburton, fine improviser on violin and piano, was the person who for years ran the online website Paris Transatlantic Magazine, which offered hundreds of composer interviews and CD reviews. This recording was made on a Tuesday in July 2001, when Warburton, with his violin, Guionet, with his alto sax, and La Casa, with his microphones, went down to a platform of the metro station Pré-Saint-Gervais in Paris in the 19th arrondissement. There, they proceeded to improvise, interacting, or not, with the sounds along the platform, the results being recorded by La Casa, who wanders about functioning almost as a third musician. I love this CD and its very particular acoustic, resonant, but not resonant like a church or a cathedral, and the marvellous way the two instrumentalists wait patiently for things to happen that they can respond to, without feeling the need always to produce something interesting, quote unquote. That was part of Métro Pré Saint-Gervais by Dan Warburton, Jean-Luc Guionnet and Eric Lacassa, and it's on the American label Chloe, released in 2002. The next piece I'd like to play is, technically speaking, a field recording, but one that seems to me very close to being potentially a piece of music, in this case some kind of electronic drone piece. It's from a CD entitled Manhattan, Linear, Circular, Lateral, By the Belgian composer Guy de Bievre. This project began from a fascination with the many kinds of electrical hum you can hear as you walk around the streets of Manhattan. I was reminded of Hermann Helmholtz's definition of musical tone as being characterised by regularity instead of the irregularity that typifies noise, writes de Bievre. So this must be music. He recorded a number of such hums within a relatively confined geographical radius, and back home in Belgium he began to analyse them, and in a sense to compose with them, exaggerating details, playing with the recording levels, panning, exploring the oral equivalent of depth, distance and motion. The result, he writes, is, quote, an impossible transparent oral image of the city, assuming the auditory equivalent of field binoculars. Just like a painted landscape, the sonorous scale model is but a simulacrum of real time. It can in no way be compared to an aerial photograph, for example, which would show the entire city in one single image made at one specific moment. Here's part of the first track entitled Linear Broadway. That was part of Guy de Bièvre's Manhattan, released privately on CD in 2004 and available from the composer. To end with, I'd like to play a wonderful recent example of the fusion of field recordings with live acoustic sound sources, in this case voices. It's the final movement of Harmonising, subtitled Artificial Environment No. 7, by the English composer Joanna Bailey, who has been living and working for many years now in Brussels. Bailey's recent work explores, in what I feel is a very poetic way, the meeting of field recordings with live performance. This takes diverse forms. Sometimes she uses the recorded material straight, without any attempt to modify or disguise it. At other times, she treats the sources as material to be reworked, at least slightly. The live parts in her pieces are sometimes straight transcriptions of the sounds on the recording, At other times, they respond to it in various ways, always in the attempt to harmonise with it. The last movement of the piece entitled Harmonising, which we'll hear now, is called Three Planes, and the field recordings indeed capture the sounds of three planes passing overhead, lightly processed. Bailey's analysis of the recording yielded a number of chords, which are then written in the score and performed by the six singers, together with sign tones in the recording. She calls the result a fictional sound environment in which the field recordings, quote, lose their accidental everydayness and become something that is paradoxically inevitable, composed, meant to be, unquote. Thank you for listening to Tentative Affinities. We end this program with a performance by the British vocal group Exaudi from their disc Exposure on the HCR label of the last movement of Harmonising, Artificial Environment Number 7, from 2012, by Joanna Bailey.